And as they make their way out those doors, the rest of us are going to be hearing a word from Jesus. If you would listen to these words, Jesus speaking to a church not altogether different from this one. Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Then He says, Repent. And then He says, Repent or I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus talking to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, giving that vivid image, repent, come back to your first love, lest I blow out the flame and you're not a church anymore. It's pretty sobering, but a very helpful reminder that it's possible to be a church one day and then eventually find yourself not a church. You might still have a building. You might still gather together. You might still call yourself a church. But Jesus has extinguished the flame because you've lost your first love. No doubt the first love being Christ Himself. The truth about Him. The Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I in one sense, don't like that passage. In another sense, as a pastor, I love that passage because it's a great and healthy reminder to us that we can call ourselves Christians and we can call ourselves a church, but that doesn't necessarily mean we are Christians. It doesn't even necessarily mean we really are a church. And so we've been doing this brief series called The De-Christianization of the Christian Church. I realize it's a mouthful the de-Christianization of the Christian church, which is to suggest it is possible for us, again, to call ourselves Christians, but to drift away from those things that are essential to Christianity, those things that make us Christians, those things that are distinctly Christian. And so I've been trying to remind you, in hopefully a good pastoral sense, Let's remember, yes, our first love, but as a reminder to remember our first love, who is Christ Himself, let's remember even what it means when we say Christian. We are Christians. We are those who, who believe in Him and trust in Him and those who are trusting in Him and therefore everything revolves around Him. Remember, early in the book of Acts, that's why they were called Christians. Because they loved Christ and they loved His gospel and everything about them was so Christ-like or Christ-centered or Christ-focused, they just started calling the disciples those Christians. It meant something. And so what we're doing, because we don't want to have it no longer mean what it's supposed to mean, is we're looking at these deadly isms. These deadly influences that oftentimes influence the church and have throughout the church's history. We've looked at eight isms that move us away from that which is essentially Christian. And we're going to look at the ninth this morning. And we'll wrap up the series this morning looking at the ninth ism as we prepare. And I'll just review them briefly just by name. But interestingly enough, sometimes we forget and we think that, that we're okay in our holy huddle as a church and all of the problems are out there somewhere, so let's build bigger walls. And so we don't talk about isms, because we think everything is fine. 
What's interesting is when the Apostle Paul addresses the same church years later, the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he does warn them about the wolves out there. But he also warns them about those who will arise in their own ranks, who will bring about perverseness in the church. These isms are real issues for us. Well, I'll just name them by name. I won't elaborate, and I realize they're mouthfuls, some of them, but you can listen and get caught up if need be on the website or on iTunes or however you would choose to do that. We looked at number one, moralism. Number two, legalism. Number three, narcissism. Number four, deism. Number five, inclusivism. Number six, mysticism. Number seven, liberalism. Number eight, pragmatism. And this morning, number nine, the ninth ism that threatens the Christian nature of Christianity would be antinomianism. Just to take a survey, how many of you have used that word already today? (laughs) Antinomianism. Antinomianism. It's a big word for a simple but ugly and deadly idea. Many of you know what it is because it's in a lot of Christian literature. Um, It's certainly in Christian theology talking about it. And even if you don't use the word, when I explain it in a moment, you'll know what it is. You'll say, I've maybe never used that word before. Maybe I've never even read that word before, but I've seen antinomianism. I actually do know what it is, even though I didn't know what it was called. It comes from two Greek words, anti, against, nomianism from the Greek word namos, law, against the law. Opposed to the law. Anti-law. Antinomianism is the mindset that says, I'm a Christian saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I say, amen, amen, amen. That's right. That's exactly right. Here's where it goes wrong. Therefore, I'm not under any kind of authority from God. I'm not under His law in any way, shape, or form. I can do whatever I want to do because, after all, grace. That's antinomianism, and we do see it. We've seen it throughout history. We see it in Bible times. We're going to look at, we'll run out of time eventually. We can't look at all of the passages, but we'll look at passage after passage after passage where the Christian church is having to deal with, sometimes not very effectively, so they need an apostle to come and sort of give them a little shake antinomianism antinomianism and we've seen it throughout church history we see it in our own era and oftentimes maybe you yourself are not saying hey I can live however I want to live because after all I'm under grace you might not have that mindset but you might have that mindset for other people you might think well I know they're a Christian because they prayed that prayer They live like the devil, but I know they're a Christian because they pray that prayer. And so you yourself become an antinomian because you create a category for, for people in your life where there is justification. They're declared righteous, declared perfect because of the work of Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, which is all biblical and right. And then you create this category for people who can be justified, but they don't have to be sanctified, meaning where you start actually having your life change because of justification. And you do have a desire to follow Christ, which comes as a result according to the gospel. And sometimes, maybe out of sincerity in our hearts, we want people to become Christians so badly who aren't actually Christians. 
So we become practical antinomians, and we have a whole new category in Christendom. We've got people who are Christians, but not committed, and disciples who are extraordinarily committed. The problem with that is in the Bible, disciples are Christians, as we've seen in days past in the early chapters of the book of Acts. All right, ready for antinomianism? Antinomianism. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. We'll have to read quickly. Just kidding. <laughs> let's, let's turn to Romans and see that antinomianism is something that is a temptation whenever you get the gospel right. Whenever you get the gospel right, you, you're going to at least entertain thoughts of being, being antinomian. And in Romans chapters 1 through 5... It's clear that you're not justified. That means declared righteous in the eyes of God. It's another way of saying saved. Romans 1 to 3 is, or excuse me, Romans 1 to 5 is absolutely crystal clear that the way to be in, uh, accepted by God, to be justified, is by faith in Christ and only in Christ. Okay? That, that is as clear as could possibly be. It's not by keeping the law. It's not by being nomian, if you will, if you want to use that term. And so in chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's all about how sinful we are. There's nothing we could ever do to earn our salvation. We can never somehow cooperate with God to have Jesus do part, and we do part of it because, as it says in Romans chapter 3, all have turned aside, verse 12. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. It's very, very dark, but that does create the reality for us that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And then he gives us this great gospel truth that it's because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Look at verse 22 of chapter 3. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe or trust who, or who place their faith in him is the idea. It's great and that means there's no boasting involved. We see that in chapter 3 and chapter 4. But then if you'd hone in with me, if you would, at verse 28 of chapter 3. For we hold that one is justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God, in the courtroom of God, by faith, apart from works of the law. I've got three stars in my margin next to that. This is gospel reality 101. It's all of Christ. It's obviously not Christ and us, because no one does good, no, not one. It's all of what He does. We're justified, declared righteous by trusting in Him, by having faith in Him. And he goes into illustrations in chapter 4 of this, using Abraham, using David. Chapter 5, he's unpacking it even more. And he just has this airtight, watertight argument. This is why we as a church would say we believe. We believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For the glory of God alone, the boasting based upon the authority of Scripture alone. We just found ourselves aligning ourselves with the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. The five alones. And it wasn't that they invented them. They read Romans careful enough and clear enough as well as the rest of the Bible to say, there's only one way we could ever be saved. It's all of God. It's all of God. If you get that right, you need to get that right. There's a big danger. The danger is worth it, okay? Because you've got to get that right. To draw an unbiblical conclusion. 
And that conclusion is antinomianism. Look what it says in chapter 6. Paul knows that there's this danger. He knows that this is a reality. He's been so clear that it's all of God based upon the work of Christ. There's nothing we do to earn it. It has nothing to do with law-keeping whatsoever because we're lawbreakers by nature. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means! The strongest way can even you object to that in the Greek New Testament. No! Not in a million years! How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's a logical impossibility. And what he's teaching us there is the reality that we did die to sin. And he's going to unpack the reality that, that if you trust in Christ, you're united with Christ, so you go to the grave with Christ, you died to sin. But that's not all. Let's keep reading the sake of time, I'll drop down to verse 4, halfway through the verse. As Christ was raised from the dead, so we already saw the death, but as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, we're united with Him in His resurrection too. Verse 5, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Masterful. Masterful what He's doing. But he knows that if you get the gospel right, there is a danger at drawing unbiblical conclusions. Like we can live however we want to now. And he's going, no, 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 no. Since you died with Christ, you died to sin. And since you were raised with Christ, you now are not enslaved to sin anymore. You have power over sin. And he goes on to unpack this reality. It's awesome. It's awesome. I think it was Martin Luther, Luther uh, who said that if people aren't asking the question of Romans 6.1, then you haven't been clear enough about the gospel. I think that's helpful. It's not biblical, but it's helpful. I want to be so clear with people that we're not teaching moralism, ism number one. If you just follow these principles, if you just do these things and then God will accept you, I want to be so clear with people as Paul was that their temptation is to draw an unbiblical conclusion and say that means we can live like the devil. Now you've got to address that objection. You have to address that unbiblical thinking. But if people are never asking you after, after hearing the gospel... Does this mean I can live however I want? You probably were adding some works over here. You must, principles, laws. It begs the question, can we do whatever we want? And by him saying, meganoita in the Greek New Testament. That, that, that's full back force, you know? May it never be. No, no, no. Because we died with Christ and we were raised with Christ. It's all what he did. So we live a different life. We're not antinomian. We actually are now wanting to serve God and, and, and do the right thing and obey God, bear fruit, other synonyms for this, follow Jesus. Now please don't misunderstand, just for clarity's sake. I'm not this morning saying that we should believe in salvation by grace through faith in Christ and then we better put a lot of emphasis on works too and kind of meet in the middle. No. Meganoita. <laughs> May it never be. Don't, please don't hear me saying that. It's all of what Christ does. Everything of what Christ does. 
all 100%, not 99.9%, and then we have to do good works. No, it's all of what he does, but out of that, because of that, in light of our union with Christ, as a result, as a response of the new birth, of having the Spirit indwell us, now we actually have a new desire, even though we still struggle. The Spirit indwells us, so the fruit of the Spirit shows up. Galatians chapter 5. But we're not trying to narrow the gap between faith in Christ and works. That gap needs to be there and it needs to be bigger than the Grand Canyon. Or we have a different religion on our hands. But because of the gospel, we actually find ourselves wanting to do what God says. Okay? All in favor? I think by the grace of God we're working really hard by the grace of God to get the gospel right. And so pastorally I know that there is the tendency then to draw unbiblical conclusions and for us to become antinomian. And we can't go there. We can't do that. And so I'm pastorally burdened about this one as much as I was burdened, almost as much as I was burdened about number one, which is moralism. Now let's talk about this in history just a little bit. This isn't anything new. We're going to see it in Titus. We're going to see it in 1 John. We're going to see it in other places as well. So it's, it was alive and well in Bible times. We just saw it in Romans, basically. In other times in history, it's alive and well. Where it's been alive in history in, in our world, in our lives, most recently where it's become popularized and published would be by an author who taught, he's, in, he's dead now, I think he knows better, but a man named Zane Hodges. Since we're talking about isms, I'll name who he is. Zane Hodges. Zane Hodges taught at Dallas Theological Seminary, which has produced a lot of fine preachers and good influence over time. And uh, thankfully, since then, they tried to distance themselves from him. And they would not want to align themselves with him uh, these days. And I'm thankful for that. But he was there, and he made a big impact there. And therefore, those who sought teachers from DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, re, uh, ended up hiring disciples of Zane Hodges. And it still is pervasive. Pastor Eric Raymond took a class at Grace University when he was working on his degree, and he was required to read Zane Hodges by one professor. I'm not saying all professors would subscribe, but Zane Hodges mentored, discipled many men, even men who still are around in our city, who are staunch antinomians. And they don't find themselves aligning with Scripture. They don't find themselves aligning even with classic Protestantism or the Reformation. And so this is a serious matter, but this is not theoretical out there and it doesn't affect anyone in our city. This isn't left in history. This is real and it still is around. Antinomianism. You can live however you want and it doesn't matter. Let's go ahead and look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, now that I've made things interesting and named names. I hope it was interesting before, but let's look, let's look at 1 John chapter 3. I'll say more perhaps about what we deal with in our day in the circle. What I'm promoting and defending in the name of critiquing antinomianism is, uh, is not anything new. 
Uh, it was John Calvin who said, in the, as a Protestant, leading Protestant reformer, who said, justification, and I'm paraphrasing, is most certainly by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the faith that justifies never stays alone. In other words, if you're truly justified, there will lead to a sanctification. There will be a change in life. This is classic Protestant, classic reformational kind of truth. But more importantly than that, let's see if it's biblical. Well, 1 John would just be a good spicy text to get things started because look what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. It says, But this, by this it is evident who are the children of God. New American Standard, as I recall, says it is obvious. It is obvious who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Now, just stop there for a second if you put your finger on the text and say, Wow! I mean, some of you might even be thinking, I didn't know this verse was in the Bible. I've heard so many people say that, you know what, we just can't know who's a Christian and who's not a Christian. And I certainly can't say without fallibility who is and who isn't. I mean, only God could do that ultimately. But isn't it amazing? There's a verse in the Bible that says you can know who a child of God and a child of Satan is. I I might want to keep reading. Let's go ahead and do that. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Wow. You say, what does that mean in Greek, though? (laughs) Stop it. It means what it means in English. There is a way to understand. There is a way to at least have a good idea. And I'm watering it down. I don't even mean to be. He says, obvious. What's our life look like? What's it look like? Is it characteristic of their life to do what God says? Or is it characteristic of their life to do what Satan says? Hmm. Might be a pretty good way to try to figure out whose side they're on. This is controversial, I realize, because it deals with where we live our lives. And sometimes we would rather not have these kinds of verses in the Bible. But they're here. And they're helpful. If I'm busy living like the devil, what are you going to tell me? Is the first thing you're going to do is assure me of my salvation? Because after all, 1 John chapter 5 says, I wrote these things to you who believe so that you may know you have eternal life. Well, if you only read that verse to me, that's called malpractice in medicine. He says in chapter 5, I wrote these things to you who believe so that you may know you have eternal life. I wrote these things to you. Let's read the rest of the book including chapter 3, verse 10. I I wrote this to you so that you can know if you're a Christian or not. But it has to do with multiple tests, like do I love other Christians? Is the characteristic of my life doing the right thing, what God says? Because I'm a Christian, not in order to become one, but because I am one. Now, I'm thankful that in 1 John, he puts these things again and again in what's called the present tense. And if you have some, like the New American Standard doesn't bring this out very helpful for you, please make sure you understand that he's talking about present tense, the characteristic of your life. He's not talking about if you, on one occasion, you know, don't do the right thing, you're smoked. Okay? Some other translations do a better job bringing out the present tense. This is the pattern of your life. This is not a one-time occurrence. The Bible doesn't teach sinless perfectionism, except Christ. 
But it does most certainly teach that if you're truly justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, there's going to be a change in your life. Let's go ahead and look at another classic passage, and that would be Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I hope you know them if you've been a Christian longer than, a, than about five minutes. Um, these are important verses. These are the kind of things I would want to die for because they're gospel verses. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we know them well. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I mean, plant your hat, plant your garden there and hang your hat there. That's Romans 1 to 5. I mean, that, that's awesome. That's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But please, don't stop there. Verse 10 says, for we are His workmanship, His poema, His poem, His masterpiece. He saves us, and He saves us as His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus. It's interesting, He's using creation terminology for salvation issues. He creates us in Christ Jesus. He saves us in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does He save us unto? What does He save us for? Good works. God's design, His intent, is to save us not by our good works, because none of us would ever be saved. He saves us by the good works of Christ, but He does save us by the good works of Christ for good works, which, by the way, are His, so He gets the credit for them, but He most certainly does that. And if you want to reverse engineer it to, to catch the gist, if you say there, there is no such thing and that doesn't happen, there are no good works, then I have to conclude logically that God has failed to do what He intended to do. Where His poema, His poem, His masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, He tried, but it just didn't work in my life. I'm not willing to go there. I don't think God is a failure. I think He succeeds in what he sets out to do. Remember that old kid song? If you're saved, then you know it. Then your life will sure, surely show it. If you're saved, then you know it. You know, punch your friend. I mean, I don't know how it went. <laughs> Stomp your feet or some cheese ball thing. Well, if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. It's a pretty good song. Could edit it a little bit. You might not even know it. <laughs> and the idea is if you're saved, your life will show it. There'll be a, a transformation. Now, another place not to go with this. Okay, I go to Jesus for justification, and I go to Jesus so that I can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. All right, I'm there. And then what I do is really, I, I've got to muster up the energy and the ability, and now I've really got to do all this extra stuff on my own, or God won't accept me, and I'm not really a child of God. Nope. Life transformation comes from the cross. Let's look at Titus chapter 2. I can't wait. Titus chapter 2, tied to the atoning work of Christ, page 998 in my Bible, which will be very confusing to you. That's where you look, but I'm trying to be helpful. 
Titus comes after First and Second Timothy. That would be more helpful. The amazing thing is, this, this actually is worthy of the ism list that threatens authentic Christianity because this is not a secondary issue. This actually is a primary issue because it's tied to the atoning work of Christ. If, if I do something right today, which would be amazing because I do struggle with sin, read Galatians chapter 5. But if I do the right thing today, if I do the right thing today, which, which should be expected if I'm a Christian, if I do something right today, you don't say, Pat, you are the man. Ultimately, and I, I don't go, yeah, Pat, you are. You know, you is. I just came from Tennessee. <laughs> you don't do that. If you do the right thing, you should say, praise be to God, I did the right thing. Oh, wait a minute, let's edit that a little bit. Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on my behalf at Calvary because I would never do the right thing apart from Him. But because of what He did do, actually it's leading to a transformed life is what should happen. Though we don't say it that way every time. But let's work through this. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. He's talking about saving grace through Christ, right? Based upon the context before. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Probably all without distinction, not all without exception here. Because he's talking to Titus who's in Crete, which is a toilet bowl cesspool of humanity. He's saying, he's brought salvation even to Cretans. This is an amazing thing that he's done. They're notorious for being bad. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people, all kinds of people, I would take it most literally, training us. The grace of God trains us, even us Cretans, to renounce ungodliness. See, this isn't by our own works. The grace of God that has appeared, trains us. It disciples us to a renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. How about this? Keep going. 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we're talking about Christ in particular, who gave Himself for us. That's atonement terminology, substitutionary atonement to redeem us, now redemption terminology, Christ terminology, cross terminology, to redeem us from all lawlessness, from all antinomianism, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is so awesome. My sanctification, which is code word, shorthand for my fruitfulness, my now doing the right thing, because I'm a Christian, not to become one, but because I am one, is not tied to me and my powers. It's tied to Christ and His work on my behalf. Did you see that? I've got everything all underlined and circled to make sure I see the train of thought. We have at the end of 13, Savior Jesus Christ. He gave Himself, that's atonement, gospel terminology, to redeem us from all lawlessness, all antinomianism, right? Who are zealous for good works? Where does this new desire to do the right thing come from? A desire that I I don't always have, but a desire that is there that wasn't there before. Where does it come from? It comes from... From that. It comes better yet from Him. Tied to the substitutionary atonement 
of Christ is this training mechanism, training us to deny ungodliness and this new hunger and zeal for good works. It is awesome. So he gets the credit. Let's reverse engineer it again, though. No passion for good works. No training to deny ungodliness. But I most certainly am a Christian. Failure at Calvary. Because tied to the design of the atonement in Titus chapter 2 with certainty is my sanctification and your sanctification. So he gets all the credit. It's awesome. The cross is the answer. The gospel is the answer. Not more moralizing do-gooderism. It's the gospel that leads to the denial of antinomianism in our lives. Ephesians chapter 5 would be another good text to go to. But let's not go there. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Ephesians 5, I'll, I'll kind of talk you through it as you're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Ephesians 5 is amazing because if in Ephesians 2, we're dead in trespasses and sins. And then chapter, that's 2, 1 and 3. 1 to 3. And then 2, 4. But God... God intervenes and God gives us life. Okay, so we're spiritually dead. He gives us life. Even by that, that should tell us something right there. We were dead. It's no wonder we lived in sin and followed Satan with a, with a hook in our nose. It's kind of the imagery in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, by the way. It's no wonder. But He made us alive. Well, even by nature, the fact that you were dead, it's no wonder you did the wrong thing because you were spiritually dead. But now you're made alive by God. We're on to something. My life might be different. Because I was dead and now I'm alive. There's a difference. And then he moves into chapter, other chapters, like in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, it's amazing. He starts talking about, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. If you're believing the gospel, if you're truly justified, you most certainly will live a different life. And I know we're not going there now, but it's interesting. It's this strong terminology like, don't let anybody tell you different. Don't let your youth pastor tell you different. Don't let your parents tell you different. Don't let your grandparents, your friends, fellow churchmen, authors like Zane Hodges. Looks like a duck, talks like a duck, quacks like a duck. It's a rhino. <laughs> a duck Jesus is the one who said you'll know them by their fruits okay you know where I, where I didn't go as you're there well, just a little follow up to Titus you don't need to go back there but the verse I didn't read is the next verse in Titus if you're taking notes you can write down Titus 2.15 after he tells us those strong things about the design of the atonement he says in Titus 2.15 Paul's talking to Titus the young pastor living in a pretty sketchy area where people are going to object to this even in the church listen to what he says declare these things 
Declare these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus must have needed that. You're going to stand up on a Sunday and say that kind of stuff? Need a little apostolic uplifter. Titus, declare these things. And don't let anyone somehow intimidate you so you don't say them. It's helpful. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 would be another text for us to look at. And again, eventually we'll just stop, but it ends up being everywhere. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, a text that was used in my life for conversion, actually, because I was so convicted. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Notice the sarcasm. Notice the, don't you even know this, Corinthians? I mean, surely you guys understand that unrighteous people don't go to heaven. I mean, didn't you learn that in Shabbat school? Before you were converted and you were a Jew? I mean, you know, you know this. You learned this in a wander, right? Oh, I should stop for a second and say, historically, anyone I've ever read, and those who read broader than I do, and I've read their stuff, guess what this verse means? means what it says. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Until along came the likes of Zane Hodges to help us all because no one in the history of Christianity had ever figured this out until the 20th century. Wink, wink. You see, there are those who are in heaven who inherit the kingdom of heaven and there are those who are in heaven, but they don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. And that's where those uh, Jesus describes as they're weeping and gnashing their teeth are. That's heaven. They just didn't work hard enough to get in the inner circle. Well, that's a load of, to use a biblical term, scubalon. Refuse. When I hear a pastor with my own ears say, I never understood the book of Hebrews. Never understood it. I've read all these commentaries. Couldn't understand the book of Hebrews until Zane Hodges taught me how to understand the book of Hebrews because no one has understood the book of Hebrews in all of church history until the 20th century. You know, if you're at that church meeting and they're serving Kool-Aid, I would pass. Go for the iced tea. I don't know what we're smoking, but it's not good. How about the Bible means what it says and it says what it means? If they won't inherit the kingdom of God, they're not going to be in the kingdom of God. And that's what Christians have believed that text to mean throughout 2,000 years of church history. If I show up next week and say, now, I, no one else has ever taught this before. But I've been studying Greek. <laughs> you know, because I have taken, you know, four years of Greek. <laughs> and I've got a new interpretation on something that no one's ever seen before. Oh, by the way, on a really big Christian issue. Pass on the Kool-Aid. Okay. 
This is kind of laughable, but it's actually not laughable. Even still today, in our city, the city is filled with people who have been trained by those Zayn Hodges as mentored. Let's keep reading the text. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That means they ain't getting in. Do not be deceived, no matter who publishes their book. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And just stop there for a second and say, that, that is bad. That is, that, is, that is bad news. If we only take that and take it out of context, you say, that is not a happy thought. Because that means Pat goes to hell. Because while I haven't done all of those things as a pattern in my life, I've done some of those things as a pattern in my life. And uh, I'd venture to guess maybe one, of, one or two of you have too. See, the idea is he's talking to people who are saved who now don't do those things. But we get saved out of all different kinds of sinful backgrounds. And he's talking to the Corinthians and he's saying, uh, look, these people don't go to heaven and you know that they don't go to heaven. Let's keep reading verse 11. Here's where the good gospel part comes. And such were some of you, Pat Abendroth. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hallelujah. Right? Gospel comes in. He does this on your behalf. Awesome and amazing. But he does say, and such were some of you. You're not, you're no longer the drunkard. It's who you were before. Church is filled with these kind of people. Church isn't for good people. Church is for bad people who are saved by a good Savior. Who now are being discipled, Titus chapter 2, trained in to deny ungodliness and to have zeal for good works. See how it works? There's a huge difference. There's a huge difference. What am I missing? Probably a lot. Let's go here. Okay. Earlier I said, what are you going to say to me if I don't live like a Christian? Here's your opportunity. This is a role play. I've done some pretty awful things. It's a pattern of my life. I say that I'm a Christian. What are you going to say to me? Pat, I know that you're a Christian because I was there when you were baptized at the First Evangelical Free Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. I know that you're a Christian because you are a pastor. I have books on my shelf that tell the conversion testimony of people who used to be pastors. What are you going to tell me? Well, I hope you tell me the gospel, like Titus chapter 2, that tied to what Christ has done is this new trainer that comes into your life that teaches you to deny ungodliness. And you have a zeal for good works and that the Spirit of God comes into your life if you're a Christian and now you bear the fruit of the Spirit. I hope you tell me about those things. I hope you say, Pat, you need to read 1 John. You need to read 1 John, Pat. Because if you're really a Christian, I don't know if you are or you're not because I'm not God ultimately, but if you're really a Christian, 
your life is going to look like you're a Christian. That would be helpful. You know what wouldn't be helpful? is for you to say, Pat, I know you're a Christian because you say you're a Christian. Let's turn to one more text in this regard, and that's Matthew chapter 7. If you're like me, I don't like Matthew chapter 7. In one sense, I would like to take this out of my Bible because it's one of the scarier places in the Bible. But at the same time, I love Matthew 7 because it's so helpful for us to understand these issues. Look what it says there, Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says they're a Christian. They've got the right God. They're not saying, Buddha, Buddha. Okay? They're not saying, Allah, Allah. They're saying, Lord, Lord. Acknowledging Jesus as the one true God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Let's keep reading. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Let me read it wrongly here. Let me read it like we act sometimes. Misquoting Jesus, I never knew you, you who never prayed the sinner's prayer. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who never walked down an aisle. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who never read the four spiritual laws and prayed to receive Jesus into your heart. No, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You antinomians. You said you're a Christian. No life transformation. I don't even know who you are. You don't belong to me. What I'm afraid we do sometimes is we take people by the hand and we lead them to use Jesus' terminology in Matthew 7. We lead them to the broad road that leads to destruction in the name of giving people assurance. That's the last thing I want to do. That's the last thing I want Omaha Bible Church to do, to be antinomian and we, in the name of love and assurance, hold people's hand and we are ushering them down the broad road. I want to do that. One more time, for sake of clarity. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, obeying the law perfectly for us lawbreakers, that he died a sinner's death, atoning for our sins and our rebellion, that he rose again from the dead for everyone who would ever believe, okay? The gospel is about the work of Christ and therefore it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, based upon the authority of Scripture alone. Okay, there we go. And we're not trying to bridge the gap between that and works. It is what it is. But if you truly are a Christian, you truly are trusting in the work of Christ, built into the work of Christ, 
is the design to train you to deny ungodliness and to give you zeal for good works. Because you're a Christian, you do the right thing. You don't do the right thing to become a Christian. Don't reverse the two. Don't try to put the two close together because then you have a different religion. But because you're a Christian, you do the right thing. This is big. This is major. And we deal with it in Omaha, Nebraska, even more than some other cities do because of our city's religious past. Let's be faithful to the gospel because the true gospel is what does lead to a transformed life. Moral of the story, keep, keep pointing people to Christ, but tell them the whole story. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. What a great opportunity for us as we're told by Jesus to remember, do this in remembrance of me. I'm so convicted that we remember very little about the significance of the gospel. We remember forgiveness, awesome. We remember atonement, awesome. We remember justification, double awesome. Okay. We remember these things. Let me allow you to, to give God more glory by remembering more about what Christ's work does. Remember, meditate on Titus chapter 2 today. It not only forgives, it not only justifies, it, it sanctifies. It leads to a transformed life. Remember Jesus Christ. Do this in remembrance of me and we'll give him glory and honor like perhaps we never have before. Let's pray. Father, thanks for our time together. I'm so thankful to be able to point people to Christ and to point my own heart to Christ. Lord, for those who are here who are not Christians, even if they say they're Christians, have today be a good day of conviction of sin by the power of the Spirit, even through the preaching of Your Word, that there would be repentance, that they would truly, genuinely, maybe for the first time, look to Christ and the cross that will lead to transformation. And for those who are here as Christians, may they cherish Christ all the more. May they give Him the glory and the credit for any good thing that they do, looking to the gospel even as the source. And as you've called us to give our lives until you come again to remembering what you've accomplished for us, we give you thanks. Bring us here again and again and again, eating and drinking bread and wine, reminding us and reminding us and reminding us yet again that we are not enslaved to sin because of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.